Hi, it's Joe Lowry. Welcome to another episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. My guests today are Robert Pell and Alex Grant of Minviro, a UK-based company that specializes in life cycle analysis and really the E in ESG. Over the next few months, I will be doing more content on this area of the industry given the significance and the pronouncements of some of the OEMs that are doing little or nothing to support the development of the lithium industry, yet want to have lithium and other battery metals that meet ESG requirements that unfortunately many of their potential suppliers are simply not in a position to do. This is an emerging topic where we are certainly going to see a lot of developments in the next few years. In my opinion, when we get into a supply crunch in 2022 and have to restart capacity, particularly in this case in China, that will not meet a lot of the ESG requirements laid on the industry by the OEMs, we will see their resolve tested. In that scenario, certain automakers that have made ESG compliance a part of their brand will have to pay premiums to ensure that their lithium and other battery material supply chains are fully ESG compliant. Just to make sure we have our terms correct, I think I said life cycle analysis and the proper nomenclature, I believe, is life cycle assessment. So that just shows you how much of a newbie in this area I am. Before we get to Robert and Alex, a couple of topics I'd like to mention. First, congratulations are in order to Ken Brinsden and the team at Pilbara for the acquisition of Altura, which I think is great for Pilbara and is also good for the industry. I'd also like to pay tribute to an industry legend that probably most of the listeners have never heard of. His name was Harold Andrews. He had a huge impact on me. I was always very giving and very kind. And he retired shortly after I started in the industry. But his influence continues to this day. I have uh, talked to so many people who have referenced seeking out Harold's wisdom and his guidance on their projects. For many years after he retired, he continued to travel the world, continued to play golf with uh, some of us, and uh, he just was a great human being. And I uh, would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge Harold. One of my wishes was to get Harold on the podcast. Obviously, that's not going to be possible now. And that's a loss for both me personally and for all you listeners, because Harold Andrews was a treasure trove of lithium knowledge. On a more uh, uplifting note, I did an Ask Me Anything call, one of the three that were promised on the last episode and were quickly snapped up. It was a little bit of a surprise when I asked the person on the other end of the line what they did for a living. They said, I work for Tesla. That person will go unnamed, but it was a very, it was a very long, it was about a 90 minute conversation. 
And uh, I really enjoy those. Uh, I am as candid as I can be. And in this case, I got some insights too. And after that lengthy preamble, Robert Pell and Alex Grant. You're listening to the Global Lithium Podcast. Robert Pell and Alex Grant, welcome to the Global Lithium Podcast. As we often do, actually we always do, we get the backstory first. So you guys can choose who goes first, but let's hear where you're from and where you're going. Great. Thanks, Jay. Um, yeah, so I'm, uh, as you can probably tell, from the UK, um, born in, in Kent, um, near London, just south of London. And um, my first foray, I suppose, into, into the resources sector was geology. Um, studied at University of Birmingham for my undergraduate degree, and then uh, went out into the world and, and worked as a, a mining journalist. Uh, I was assistant editor at International Mining. Uh, that's a UK publication that distributes uh, sort of mining technology news and updates. Um, that was a great, great job that I really enjoyed. Tra- got to travel around the world, see lots of exciting projects. Picked up a lot of things about the kind of uh, innovative ways mines are uh, approaching technology at their sites. After three years of that, um, I then saw a great opportunity to, to carry out a PhD at Camborne School of Mines at University of Exeter in southwest England. During that PhD, that was really focused on applying life cycle assessment to quantify environmental impacts for rare earth projects, looking at how we can incorporate this, this approach to, to measure and mitigate environmental impact during the development stage of these projects. Um, during that time, I was, I was lucky enough to work with Professor Francis Wool um, and Dr. Zhao Yu Yan. So Francis had great uh, understanding and knowledge of, of rare earth geology and, and Zhao Yu in life cycle assessment. And so having those insights from both sides really helped um, familiarize yourself with both sectors and, and really incorporate both ideas and, and develop some really uh, interesting methodologies, which got picked up quite well in the academic community published a fair few um, academic papers on developing these life cycle assessment methodologies, um, some of which actually got picked up by the European Commission and they were promoting uh, the use of this life cycle assessment in project development because we identified some really significant opportunities to mitigate these impacts. So towards the end of my PhD, uh, Camborne School of Mines, it was quite clear that there was commercial interest and the ability to apply this in a commercial setting, uh, this life cycle assessment approach. And so I formed Minviro. So Minviro is actually a spin-out from University of Exeter and still deeply connected to, to Campbell School of Mines and University of Exeter, connected with a lot of the research that's coming out of that institute. And I, I absolutely love research, still publishing papers now. Um, yeah, and so quite soon after forming Minviro, it was, uh, it was clear that there was interest in the rare earth space, but I, I quite quickly came across Alex Grant and David Deke who shared that, uh, that same passion for driving sustainability um, in, this, in the lithium space. Um, and so we, we quickly formed a partnership under seeing this opportunity. Yeah, started, started doing life cycle assessments for the industry. Yeah, and uh, it's really been growing since then. That happened uh, over a year ago, and we've really uh, gone from strength to strength in this space. Okay, well, you noticed I let you pronounce your company name first, so we, we, we have inculcated that on the listener's mind. So, Mr. Grant, give us your story. Mr. Lowry, thanks so much for having us here today. We really appreciate it. We're, we're excited to, uh, to talk about what Minviro is doing. So, my story starts in a, uh, in a small town north of Toronto uh, in Canada. 
I uh, went for my undergrad at McGill in Montreal to study chemical engineering and philosophy. And throughout undergrad, I was doing research in universities around the world um, and at startups in Montreal, uh, studying water chemistry, uh, wastewater treatment, and, uh, and kind of aqueous environmental impact mitigation. But after a couple of years of that, I got tired of cleaning up other people's messes and, and wanted to help start building uh, the, the future uh, energy system because uh, I've always cared very deeply about climate and applying my, my technical uh, skills to, to solving uh, you know, climate change related issues. So I went for a PhD at Northwestern in Chicago to study uh, heterogeneous catalysis for CO2 conversion for alternative uh, kind of small molecule uh, carbon-based fuels uh, with the idea that we could take CO2 out of the atmosphere, make uh, a two or three carbon long chain and, and burn it again um, using uh, uh, hydrogen from water and, and CO2. Uh, however, I, I realized that there were some entropic issues with that concept um, and, and thought maybe it would be better to instead use all that energy for extracting CO2 uh, from the atmosphere and, and just put it on an electron or, or a lithium atom instead. So, so I dropped out of my PhD with a master's uh, and I helped co-found a, a technology company called Lilac Solutions, uh, which is a DLE technology company based in California. And uh, I left Lilac just over two years ago because I wanted to have a broader impact in the lithium space uh, to work on uh, different types of resources. Um, so in the last two years, I've worked on four or five different sedimentary clay projects. I've worked on a couple different unconventional brine projects and studied the DLE space in detail. That's, uh, that, that's the kind of context in which I met Rob. Uh, we met on the internet as everyone meets these days. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we started the partnership with, uh, with David. I, I told David about this, uh, this, this really cool LCA nerd I met in, in London. And I asked him if he wanted to, to come work on LCA for lithium with us. So for, for the last year, uh, we have been doing kind of independent, um, ISO compliant, really professional LCA using Rob's skill set and experience in the lithium space. Um, though, though Minviro more broadly is, is doing uh, LCA on, on a, a variety of battery metals and, and other kind of technology materials. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's where we're at now. And uh, we've, we've, had, we've made a lot of progress in the last year. It's been really exciting and really, really rapid. But we, we published um, uh, very high level results from a, from a global lithium hydroxide monohydrate LCA yeah. in, in January. I actually, I actually wrote that, that report on Christmas Eve. <laughs> um, that's what I was doing. <laughs> and, most, uh, most people are watching Love Actually or something. <laughs> most people are, are, are watching Love Actually. I was, yeah, I was writing a, uh, writing a LinkedIn article. Um, oh. and, <laughs> we put that out and, uh, you know, to be clear, like we, you know, I'm sure we'll dive more into the details of this, but uh, we we put together, you know, essentially a set of numbers associated with different types of lithium natural resources uh, for the for the CO2 intensity of making lithium hydroxide from those resources, relying on um, our own technical kind of insights and and, and Rob's experience and making uh, very um, critical judgments about what data to use, and uh, we didn't know if we were right. But, uh, but, but our numbers turned out to be pretty good. Um, so they got picked up by major lithium companies, which now use it as, you know, sort of a benchmark on, on their, their websites. And uh, we're, we're very proud of that. And we're very, very proud of helping kind of advance that conversation. So now, now we're working on uh, many different LCAs related to lithium chemical manufacturing. Be careful saying benchmark. Simon might want a royalty. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, let's, let's get into, I mean, this was, ostensibly going to be a life cycle analysis podcast. 
let's start at the beginning with the defining ESG. And just to give you some context on some of the cynicism that's out there, I got an unsolicited text from a prior podcast guest who's been in the industry almost as long as I have. And he, no preamble, just said, in my humble opinion, ESG is just a new buzzword. And I personally actually don't feel that way because I, there's just too much evidence that this is part of the future. But it just, when you, as you explain what ESG is, I'd also like some color on the acceptance route and how you've seen maybe from the time you started until now attitudes change if they have. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit about um, the origins of ESG. So, so the, the combination of the, of the three words, uh, environment, social and governance uh, first occurred in an essay in 2005 titled uh, who cares wins. And this, in this essay, the authors, made the argument that companies which prioritize minimizing environmental impacts, cultivating social license, and um, operating with strong governance principles will succeed economically uh, more so than other companies which don't. Who wrote the it paper? Was, it was by a Swiss group. I forget exactly who the author was, okay. but uh, but I have the essay. I can share it with you later. Okay. Um, um, so, so, so this concept was uh, sort of dormant and fringe for you know 15 years or so. You know, it seems to me what has happened in 2020 is that folks have been uh, kind of locked up in their living rooms with their families and uh, we're reflecting on what really matters. And there appears to be this kind of revelation that uh, things other than uh, making as much money as humanly possible also matter. Um, and, and I think that's why uh, the ESG concept has become so popular in, in the investosphere in 2020. Rob, do you want to add anything to that? Or Well, I have a, I have a specific question for Rob in terms of you know, you're sitting on the other side of the quote unquote pond for me. Do you see at the present time more interest in one region that I would think Europe, just based on my read of things, I'd say Europe's kind of the head of the game on this. Is is that in your mind correct or is that just my ill reading of the situation? No, I think you're right. There's uh, the adoption of ESG it does have biases based on on location. You know, investors from certain territories are have ESG at a, a higher percentage of importance when they're making investment decisions. And you're definitely seeing that in Europe as being, you know, very central. There's also something to be said about ESG advancing because of the, I suppose, some of the competitive advantages of, if, say, if we're talking about ESG in Europe or, or say, Scandinavia, as an example, there's some advantages to having these ESG as uh, valuing your projects. Because if you've got a spent a lot of money on infrastructure, saying you've got a low grid mix for your electricity, that's going to perform well from an ESG point of view, or just on the E side anyway. And so I think, you know, there's there's a lot of moving parts to, to why ESG is, is, has grown so rapidly in this short term. And that that growth in the short term is actually part of the problem as well, because so many companies have so many different ideas of, of what ESG means and how you measure ESG across those impact categories. And obviously that, that means that there's disagreement in, in how companies are performing, because if you've got different methodologies, you've got different companies scoring in different ways. So we really focus on the, the E part. So when we're doing life cycle assessment, you know, we're, we're looking to quantify the environmental performance of a product 
or, or a project. And so we don't work so much on, on the social and governance side. Um, we recognize that it's, it's really important, but we also recognize that there's probably experts that can not necessarily quantify, but, but reflect the challenges in those spaces uh, more accurately. So we really understand where our, our focus is and really focus on, on the quantification, not just a generic like a terminology of state sustainability or tick box exercise. So your company's efforts are most significantly on the E part of this. That's, that's, that's the proper frame. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. So that, there's an interesting point here though. So origin of life cycle assessment was covering the E part. So it's environmental life cycle assessment. You're measuring a range of environmental impact categories. But life cycle assessment has always developed, also developed into the social field. So you can actually apply social life cycle assessment. But this is a less developed area. So although it, 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 more work has been done in an academic context, but it hasn't really been incorporated into, into companies at a larger scale. Um, and you also have an economic uh, life cycle assessment that can be incorporated, which I suppose covers a little bit of that governance side. And when all aspects of these different life cycle assessments are applied together, this is an approach called life cycle sustainability assessment. And the UNEP, United Nations Environmental Programme, actually did a report on this a few years back and uh, highlighted how you carry this out. But these other two sectors haven't advanced as anywhere near as much as the environmental life cycle assessment. I was going to go there and, and you've just preempted my next, next question, but I would like to investigate the whole Everybody has a sustainability report now. I have a, a great cynicism towards the sustainability because I, I remember when my former employer hired a guy who was like the sustainability guy. And I was like, damn, I don't want that job. He, he actually wound up running the lithium business for a while, but that's a, that's a separate story. Are most companies in your mind still, is this just like Sarbanes-Oxley, we would say in the United States, it's, you know, reporting requirements that they have to do, but it's like, you got to get a, every, every five years I have to go uh, have a procedure that I would rather not have done. Is there any embracing of the real value of this or are people still ticking boxes? One, from my perspective, um, I, I, you know, I think people are taking uh, the environmental impact quantification obligation way more seriously in the last couple months. Uh, I know that some of the major lithium chemical companies, for example, are conducting, you know, very professional LCAs with independent third parties that have kind of an auditing component to them. And they're, they're done with ISO standards and, and all these different things. And, um, and that's commendable. But, um, but, you know, I, you know, kind of going back to the comment from your from your colleague, you know, I actually kind of hate the term ESG as well. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think it's, I think it's terrible to just group everything, uh, together that, uh, you know, is not aligned with making as much money as humanly possible. Um, and, and by no means is this like an anti-capitalist statement. Uh, you know, I am, I am a capitalist, um, you know, I am pursuing ventures, which, uh, will, will generate revenue if they're successful. You know, the, the these kind of, these considerations are so incredibly different and, you know, like Rob said, uh, you know, social impacts are, um, you know, some academics are trying to quantify social impacts using social LCA, but the the impact categories are much less developed and more controversial, right? Like some some of them include rate of unionization and you know what fraction of the of the of the children population is in school and stuff like this. It's much harder to quantify, but um, but 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 the on the environmental impact side, um, you know, the LCA 
industry is decades old. I mean, it's not new at all. And, and you know, Ro- Rob's experiences really, really benefit from all of all of uh, history. And um, it's just it's apples to oranges to pears. I mean, the the priorities of, of, of all these different, you know, kind of considerations for what makes uh, kind of a healthy, sustainable operation are, are all so different. Um, so, <laughs> I, so I often I mean, take, I would, take I would the say jab gover- at the term ESG. <laughs> Governance is probably the pair. Um, and so let's, let's kind of narrow the frame here. I mean, let's just stipulate that social and governance are important, but today we're probably just going to talk about environmental. When you get into water, that touches all three. And we can do a more specific, I mean, you've already done the Is Brian Water podcast. So, uh, <laughs> well, we- you know, disputes over water use are, are acute and, and can be realized within days or months, of course. But uh like climate change will get us all in the end. Uh, yeah, I, and I don't disagree with that. But I, water, you can you can fast for forty days and be okay. You can't uh, go without water for yeah. for too long and and make it. You can destroy the environment and might say, hey, I, I'm probably I'm probably going to die a natural death. You know, my kids. Well, it's it's up for grabs with them. The, cl- uh, the climate wars. Yeah, I mean, I'm worried. Uh, we all should be. Okay, so what does to you? What does proper LCA or environmental impact modeling look like? What are the key components? If you just want to take us through that uh, bit. Yeah. So, I mean, there are clear uh, guidelines. Um, So as Alex has already mentioned, there's ISO standards. So ISO 14040 and ISO 14044, which really are the guidelines for carrying out life cycle assessment. These guidelines are are pretty broad because they cover life cycle assessment for every scenario you can ever imagine. Um, You then have some more detailed guidelines, which are defined under ILCD. But the the way to carry out a really strong, robust life cycle assessment, you really need to have an understanding of the life cycle assessment approach and methodology and understanding what procedures are appropriate in different scenarios. So when we're talking about what we're trying to measure, you know, that's an important thing to consider. What are you trying to measure when you're carrying out a life cycle assessment? There's a whole range of impact categories that you can select from. You know, this can include really commonly and well understood ones such as climate change. You know, everybody's heard about that. Other impact categories such as water use or land transformation. But then there's some some more, uh, I suppose, exotic sounding ones like acidification, human toxicity impacts. Um, You know, from my rare earth background, uh, ionizing radiation is a particularly important one to consider. So there's a whole range of impact categories. The first stage of our life cycle assessment approaches when we work with companies and what any good LCA practitioner should do is identifying which impact categories are appropriate for a project. Because at the end of the day, a project in one location where they have you know, an abundance of a particular type of material or low, low CO2 electricity, it's not going to touch the same impact categories as those which might be consuming coal for power. So this first stage is identifying what you're measuring, your functional unit, find in life cycle assessment, and your impact categories that would be touched with your life cycle assessment. Yeah, the next phase would be the, the time consuming and pretty challenging phase of life cycle assessment, which is the life cycle inventory. That's collecting all the data that you require to, to model, to create your model. And this includes anything that you would consume, such as energy, reagents, water for your project, and any direct emissions that might occur at the site within the system boundary. Um, and this is actually not as simple as just taking the data. We, you know, we, 
we spend a lot of time validating this data, making sure that it's it's realistic and appropriate. Alex has got great insights into lithium technology, uh, direct lithium extraction processing technology. So if we're working on a project like that, we, I mean, we'll validate with first principle calculations and the like. So once you've got all that lifecycle inventory, you've got your database, and then you're really doing the, the calculations, converting that inventory into those relevant impact categories that we defined right at the beginning of, of the project. And then a very important stage, and this is something that people should really look out for when they're evaluating lifecycle assessments. You need to make sure that you have a review of that lifecycle assessment, an independent third-party review. So we would carry out a lifecycle assessment, and then we would have somebody look at that lifecycle assessment and review it and make sure it's following those ISO guidelines. So that's something that's very important and often not completed in, in the industry we've seen. So that, that's an important step. Is there currently an accepted body or bodies, depending on where you are in the world, that is like the big accounting firms that comes in and says, our books were audited by KPMG or PricewaterhouseCoopers. Has it matured to that level or is it still a little wild west in how it, things get certified or whatever word you want to use? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question. And it's, it's, uh, it's definitely not as evolved in the raw material space or the lithium chemical space as other sectors. There's, there's a thing called environmental product declarations, which, uh, which are commonly used. It's, it's not quite a life cycle assessment, but it uses the life cycle assessment approach. And there are environmental product declarations for a lot of construction and building materials. That sector is a little bit more advanced. Um, and and that, but then those environmental product declarations can actually be used in, say, the CAD modeling of, of new building construction. So you already have that embodied, those embodied impacts in that material. That hasn't occurred in the in the lithium space or the battery metal space, but that's definitely where we see see it going. Uh, and Minvario is very uh, forward facing on this and want to be involved in making sure that this is done correctly using the correct methodology and allocation procedures and everything like that. Let's go from your macro view to Alex. If you're if you're going to distill what the you're, you're bringing this to a lithium company and saying, this is the future, you know, you're going you're gonna to be challenged to do this. I, I think you've already done that with some people. First of all, if you go into a lithium company to talk about this, who do you generally talk to in the organization? That is a, uh, that's a really good question. If, if we're trying to develop a relationship with a lithium company to do LCA and support their LCA efforts. It, it totally depends on what they would be using the LCA for, right? So, um, and, and there are many uses of LCA. So the, I, would, I would say the most common are in process development. So some projects in development want to use LCA kind of feedback and kind of iterative support to modify their design of their extraction or processing flow sheet. Uh, in order to reduce environmental impacts. In that case, we're talking to the CTO, we're talking to the VP of technology, those types of folks. For, for operators and people who are already manufacturing and selling lithium chemicals, uh, then, we're, then we're probably more likely talking to the commercial team uh, and, and whoever is talking to customers. U ultimately, the, the need for an LCA on, on the commercial side uh, kind of comes from, from the customer. So it's the buyers who are, who are asking for um, particular kinds of reporting on environmental impacts. Um, so, so yeah, in that case, we're talking to the, the sales guys yep. and girls. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I don't know. Rob, Rob, do you think that's a fine assessment? Yeah, I, I, as you said, it really depends on the, 
on the app, what they're using the LTA for. We like to we like to call it environmentally informed decision making when life cycle assessment is being used in that development phase, um, and that's actually where a lot of my uh, PhD work was was placed. It was it was using life cycle assessment to predict the environmental impact. So you can really make in, in decisions before the company has spent millions of pounds on infrastructure and 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 that process. That, at that point, whatever we find in the life cycle assessment, it's not going to change the project. We have to do it in the earlier stages to make an impact. Yeah, and that's that's kind of where I'm going with this, is that you walk into a company, you're talking to the head of commercial. He's just trying to craft a storyline, usually. Yeah. Yeah. If you talk to the technical guys, you have some degrees of freedom in designing your expansion or more likely to have real impact other than this guy got told in his objectives for the year that you got to have a LCA document by uh, February 12th or we're going to, you know, your bonus is going to be lower. And I mean, I mean, I've, I've lived this, I've seen how that kind of thing drives behavior. And so do you get a sense early on whether company A is serious and company B is just trying to uh, box tick? Yeah. hundred we're not, we're, we're not mentioning names here. This is a safe space. <laughs> this is a safe space. Yeah. I, I, I don't like mentioning names cause I don't think it's polite, but we have encountered an incredible range of attitudes towards LCA uh, ranging from they, someone just wants a really good press release and they don't want to spend any money for it to really deeply sincere, caring uh, attention to environmental impacts and, and quantifying them professionally. And um, it, it's it's really a, a kind of a crazy spectrum. You, yeah. I, I, let sorry. me ask you a question another another way. And it, you know, it's yeah. just unfortunately, you're faced with how my mind works. But <laughs> if can you get a sense from reading a company that you haven't dealt with up till that point, reading their sustainability report and have an idea based on how that's written, what their real attitude towards all that is? Are there clues? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. From my side, I think there there are there are clues because you can see the methodologies that they've used to to calculate, say, CO two intensity for their project or assumptions that they've made, and you can you can usually tell from that how transparent they are willing to be with the public and uh, with their methodology. Something that I think is really important is being clear about how you got to those numbers, and and often often is the case that you can't see that. But my my personal experience, with, I've been quite impressed with. Um, with the attitudes of a majority of companies that we worked with. I think that it's because of the nature of the, the lithium space that, you know, it is involved. They know where that material is going. It's related to the low carbon economy. I think the attitudes generally are very, very positive and uh, probably much better than, than if we were say covering a more, uh, maybe a different commodity, which isn't so central to the the energy transition. Well, and I also think it's where the company views itself in the in the cosmos. I mean, if you take a company, and I'm going to name names, you don't have to respond based on the name. But if you take a company like Albemarle, Albemarle is a large, for, for the lithium industry, a large company. And they have the departments to deal with this, the financial wherewithal to deal with this. And, and they want to be seen as doing the right thing, whether they always do the right thing or not. They want to at least be seen as on that path. You take a, and we're not going to mention a name here. You take, go to South America and pick a junior. And hey, they're kind of hand to mouth. They don't really have the, the, the money to, to do a lot of this stuff. So we want to be able to 
say that we're doing the right thing, but do you see a path to this being internalized across the board? And then when you do the life cycle assessment and you say, okay, we, we went through all this and we got the numbers, how do you monitor that what was said is actually what happens two years later, three years later? How does that, how does the cycle of life cycle take shape? Yeah. So, so just to say, I, I think like in terms of cultivating and um, monitoring sincerity and seriousness about minimizing environmental impacts, like first thing I would say is like, whenever any big company does anything good, we are so happy to see it. One particular company announced at Fast Markets that they were chasing coal out from their Chinese processing facility. That made us viscerally happy. I think, um, we, just, I think we might have mentioned that company. Whether, <laughs> whether uh, you know, uh, um, yeah. So that, that act literally makes us happy whether we made money from it or not, right? Um, and, and at the end of the day, in terms of like monitoring and understanding sincerity, what really matters is who lithium buyers give offtake agreements to and whose projects they endorse by, uh, by helping them get finance or, or whatever the mechanism is. And, and what I will say is that lith- like sophisticated lithium buyers, like big ones essentially, especially yep. in Europe and North America, yep. have LCA teams. They are very smart people and they don't read Twitter. So if there's <laughs> some of them do. <laughs> <laughs> if there's so if there's some silly junior kind of um, publishing, um, kind of totally unsubstantiated environmental performance yeah. claims, uh, whether they're whether it's quantifiable or other otherwise, uh, I believe that the smart people uh, who work at these OEMs and major lithium buyers uh, can tell the difference for the most part, um, because there's there's certainly a lot of fluff out there. You know, we've we've publicly railed against greenwashing in the past because yep. we think it's it's problematic and uh, it's, it confuses people. And um, you know, to, to be greenwashing this this incredibly important nook of the energy transition is kind of bonkers, right? <laughs> uh, so, yeah. so you know. I just had something to add there on. Um, you know, sometimes the smaller companies don't have access to life cycle assessment specialists. And, and that's something that we've identified as a challenge as well. Like, you know, it's, it's not, it can be resource intensive and, and costly. So something that Minvara is actually doing as well is, is, is trying to develop, a, we're in the stage of uh, developing a, a software tool, which we've been funded by UK government and EIT raw materials in, in Europe to allow these companies to be able to actually carry out these life cycle assessments with the limited data that they might have. And then, still have good quality understanding of, of the environmental impact, even but at a lower cost. And then they can still, as the project develops and they get more funding, or if they do pass through and get more funding, that's the point when they can do high quality, robust ISO compliant life cycle assessments. Well, Alex raised a good issue and one I'd like to pursue a little bit. You're talking to customers, you're talking to big buyers, and you're talking to lithium companies. And obviously the buyers want to be able to say we bought lithium raw materials with a score of 90 or, you know, if, if assuming there was a score, do you see the, the next five years, if you look at going out to 2025, 2026, and you're going to have a tripling of lithium demand based on most forecasts. 
So this is a huge challenge for the industry. And then you lay on the requirements for being, for lack of a better word, being greener than they are today. How do you see the power? I mean, it's, it's like lithium is going to go into a shortage and then the suppliers are going to have, right now, buyers have the advantage. You're going to see, a, you're going to see that turn again, like it did in 16 and 17 to the suppliers are, yeah, you know, this is the price. This is it. Oh, you know, we're, yeah. we're, we're, we're firing up that, uh, our cold fired converter. <laughs> and h- how do you see those interactions happening and, and who wins the struggle? That's a good, that's a good question. I think the, there is a, there is definitely a struggle there because I mean, you look at what's happening in Europe with, you know, the, the regulations around the, the CO2 intensity of the, of the battery. That's not an ask, that's a requirement. So that, that has a tangible cost for those, co- those companies. And so, you know, they are going to require to have that LCA highlighting the CO2 intensity and that that company's made efforts to reduce that CO2 intensity yeah. in one way or another. At, at the same time, though, like in the free market, you know, these buyers are going to get the supply chains they they pay for, right? You know, a lot of the growth in the last couple of years has come from Western Australian spodumene coal roasted in, in China. Um, and if, 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 <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's absolutely a fact. And you, you ask yeah. a good question and I think it's your greenwashing article, which is actually up on my computer in front of me. If you're, if you're pricing lithium, how do you account for a converter that's willing to basically go at break even? Cause that's just what they're doing. And the buyer says, well, you know, I, if I'm going to buy it from, the top ranked Western guy, he's going to charge me X in a, a ton. And if I buy it from this guy in China, he's going to charge me 3000 a ton less than X. But I know implied in that lower price are environmental costs that ultimately somebody has to pay. It, it's externalized as Milton Friedman would say, you know? Yeah. What are you going to be able to get to going in to talk to somebody that might be named Sarah? and say to her, look, here's, here's the world because, you know, you've studied this and you have a map for it. And if you buy here, these guys are doing the right thing. These guys may do the right thing in the future, but right now they're not. And this is a, to me, the essential question, when do you see this really changing behavior? And the EU is talking a lot right now. But I'm also talking to a lot of the people that are trying to put lithium projects in Europe. And my advice to them is, hey, if you're going to make, if you're going to make a converter, and a lot of these guys actually want to make hard rock to carbonate to hydroxide. And I'm saying, dude, why, why, why wouldn't you just buy the carbonate and convert it? Less capital, less waste. And, And I'm not, I'm not trying to make a, I mean, I'm stating one aspect that that I've had personal experience with in talking to people from Norway down further south. And it's, how do you see EU is say, oh, you know, we're going to have, you can hear 300 gigawatt hours, you can hear 413 gigawatt, there's all sorts of numbers out there by a certain date. And we want that to be locally sourced chemicals. And we want it responsible. I mean, Mercedes is I would say yeah. a rather a rather pompous uh, statement that we're only going to take product from people that can demonstrate yeah. they're green. That that's not the word they use, but 
my my real question here is how do you see that shaking up because there's 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 a lot of there's a lot of trouble getting to there and it isn't going to happen in 5 years yeah i i i think um i think clarity around the language we use to talk about environmental impacts is critical so we it, it, doing LCA, we always speak in terms of impact categories, impact categories, impact categories, impact categories, which, which have units. They are numbers. <laughs> um, and, and the most popular is, uh, is global warming potential, which has units of tons of CO2 per ton of product delivered to a particular location of a certain quality that has a certain functional use. Is that your top criteria when you're speaking about lithium? If you're going in and you say, I got three impact categories I'm going to manage and, and I, it, it's Pareto. It's I'm going to do, I'm going to get 80% of it, 20% of the categories. Impact, um, yeah. Impact categories are critical for talking about these things intelligently and, and coming up with, with real plans for minimizing environmental impact. So um, I, I believe that uh, teams uh, operated, uh, you know, with, by people named Sarah, uh, are putting a lot of thought into this. Okay. Um, however, uh, there, there are competing teams which uh, have been putting thought into it for, for more than a decade. And, and those competing teams also um, make commitments to their customers that their product is carbon neutral when, upon delivery. Uh, so, so that, and you know, that requires that team to understand the CO2 emissions in terms of tons of CO2 or, or kilos of CO2 per kilowatt hour of installed capacity in, in the EV battery um, with numbers, right? This is not just slapping a green onto, uh, onto, onto a product name, right? Like uh, they actually need to calculate that number so that they know how many credits to buy, right? Yeah, but let's, let's get into the whole credit buying bit. And in your chart, uh, in your greenwashing article that was a benchmark that I'm looking at right now that says German geothermal brine with the offsetting coal versus California geothermal brine. It comes out better on your scale. I mean, they're actually below the line and everybody else is above the line. And Australian spodumene with Chinese conversion is trumps everybody by not to, you know, cite a presidential pun, but how in your mind, likely most places, and I know it's happening in the Western United States, they're, they're forcing coal to be shut down. Anyway, I think they've shut down five coal-fired plants early in New Mexico and Arizona. And so is it really fair to give a brine operation a better rating because they get a credit because they're replacing coal? When that's, that's a short-term, that's something that was going to happen anyway. I mean, that's like almost like a, a sunk cost in a financial analysis. I mean, that, that is going to, that coal plant's going down. And do you give Vulcan a bonus and give the guys in the salt and sea? Ultimately, when the market goes short, investment decisions are going to be made and this criteria is going to be part of it. I believe, I believe that. Nobody's investing right now in lithium, but when they see the reality of life without lithium because they haven't invested, there will be checks written or at least offtakes agreements with some teeth put in so people can get financed. It's a long-winded question. What's the offset thing kind of bothers me because it just yeah, seem I can right. I can I can definitely give you some insights in, in how it's treated within life cycle assessment. So, you know, in, in pretty much any life cycle assessment you do for any products, it's it's very common to have co-products. And those co-products can be physical co-products or the co-generation of energy in, in, in this instance. 
Um, and the way that you, you deal with that is you use approaches known as system expansion, if you can, as a first option. And that means that you are really deducting the impact that you're, you're using, uh, that that co-product is, is, is when you're producing that as well as the main product. And that's deducted from your total impact. And it was a very astute observation about the uh, idea that, that, you know, you've got energy, energy that's transitioning. And there's this, there's this concept where this is another academic paper that I published during my PhD, which was the com- concept of temporally explicit life cycle assessment. So, you know, I'm a geologist as a background. I know that the ore in the ground is heterogeneous. It's, it's very different. It has different penalty elements. It has different grades. When we're making life cycle assessments, we're, at the end of the day, we're making an average impact over a certain time period. You know, we can change that time frame if you want. We can take, change it to per, per year or per month. But, you know, over the life of the project, we can use, uh, we, we tend to use data such as the International Energy Agency's forecasts for energy transitions to see how you're offsetting against that. So when, we, when we're talking about offsets of energy, we, we're looking at a, a changing grid mix, basically. Yeah, sorry, but I'm just going to say that one more thing. The International Energy Agency's forecasts are quite conservative in, in the uh, renewable transition. So that's one thing to, to, yeah. to just note. Let me just put this question out there because it may foment a different answer. Okay, so we have this, this whole environment now and we're buying and selling credit. Tesla like made a billion dollars from selling credits. Do you think the selling of credits is a positive or a negative long-term? Because if you can just buy credits, maybe you're slower at pulling the trigger on the capital you're spending. I see that in a sense as almost a perverse incentive that do the right thing now and you buy credits in 2020, you can't buy them by 2020. Yeah. What you're you're referring to are voluntary carbon markets where where people want to offset their CO2 emissions for some commercial or strategic goal. Um, which are legitimate and real. Um, but what matters is the price of that carbon, right? Because if you're only paying $2 per ton of CO2 to offset your emissions, it, then the actual concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere uh, is not going to be reduced because it's exactly. impossible that's, to get out for that price, right? That's, that's my point is that you can have a carbon trading market, you can do all that and that's fine. But to me, it looks like, Maybe you let that run for five years, but if you're if you're sitting back there saying, you know, I really don't have to do the right thing here for a while because I, I can just buy credits. Yeah, it, it yeah. to me just doesn't seem like you're incenting the right behavior. And, and what what am I missing in that? Well, what I think what you're missing is that when the price of carbon is high enough, it incentivizes reduction of actual emissions uh, for at a particular project or a reduction of reagent use which uh has embodied emissions um so with with the right price it does drive behavior uh locally at a project right um but but just more generally uh on on the idea of offsets and and uh and how how we allocate emissions in an lca like we follow best practice kind of lca principles um which which does require some kind of kind of editorializing from time to time because in the lithium space lithium is oftentimes uh a product uh, of some other principal product, it's a, it's a byproduct, or, or it has byproducts uh, from waste streams or, or whatever it is, right? And you know, sometimes what we'll do is, if, if there's a particularly contentious uh, major credit that's being applied in a model, well, then we'll actually split it out when we we'll present two numbers and let people make up their own mind about which number they think is more legitimate. 
and there, there's a perfect analogy with with OpEx and price here, I think. So if if you're uh, if you're like a byproduct like project in development, and uh, uh, the the majority of, of your revenue is coming from something that's not lithium, then if if you subtract that that revenue from your OpEx, your total OpEx, and then present that as the OpEx of your lithium extraction and processing. I guess we know what we're talking just, about now. <laughs> well, there's, I'm not referring to anyone in particular, um, but there's, there's a number of projects like that in development. And, um, you know, on one hand, it's like, okay, sure. You, you can, yeah. uh, you can apply that credit to your OpEx. It, it kind of makes sense if, if the market for your other credit if, for your other product is yeah. is is real and you'll be able to sell it of course but it feels there's feels a little funny right well let, okay <laughs> let me even though we're not talking about anybody in particular i can tell you that sqm viewed lithium as a byproduct for 19 years before they viewed it as a product and when they looked at their costs they didn't count most of most of the cost to get into the pond system was borne by the potash operation. And, and they behaved that way. They priced that way. And so, you know, I mean, I think you weren't talking about SQM, but I mean, that, I, those kind of things happen. I think that's part of the value of what you do is to put a light on. If you look at an operation, especially if it's, it's, quote unquote, byproduct operation, you really need to look at the environmental impact of the product driving the operation. Because yeah. otherwise, you can take the attitude, oh, that's going to happen anyway, and we're just getting the cream. But that's not going to reduce, that's not going to reduce CO2 in the atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to, I just wanted to say like, you know, our attitude for like, you know, a perfect project, it can use offsets, but it's not the first thing that you do. The first thing you do is you design your project to be minimum impact using LCA to inform that decision. And then, you know, if you want to achieve that low impact at the end, then you, it is possible to use offsets, but it shouldn't be used to make a lazy decision, basically, just to offset an impact for any development with that environmental consideration. Well, and then you get into national versus global concerns. Yeah, yeah. Is it, if I'm making a case in the United States for a lithium project and I'm offsetting something, man, I'm going to, I'm saying take that to the bank. <laughs> and, and that doesn't, that doesn't help the world's total situation. I, I've always been pretty much a pragmatist uh, and that's why I, that's the way I think about these things. And in, in some cases you've uh, disabused me of uh, my anti-credit mentality, but all of those things are going to come back to somebody's doorstep. And, you know, you don't have a lot of guys right now, but a lot of people are going to have to be thinking about what you're doing how do you see this part of the industry? Because you actually are part of the industry now. How do you see this growing and quantify? I mean, how much influence do you feel you have now versus how much influence you'll have in five years? Yeah. So this is, I want to give you context of, <laughs> I want to give you context of, of where we've come from um, even just in the last two years. So there was before our, our lithium hydroxide LCA to the public, there was one data point that was reused really for the whole the whole of lithium production. Like they, they wasn't even classified into different lithium chemical products. That's fascinating to me that that people would use a generic average. Yeah, and that's something that we've seen that trend in the last year that there's a real need for high resolution asset by asset 
LCA data, which is trusted ISO compliant. Um, and that's really requested from, from the downstream users of that. They, they want to, you know, if, if an OEM is going out there spending a fortune on developing supply chains that have higher, you know, sustainability credentials, that wants to be showcased in their LCA performance for their, their equipment. And they can't do that with that generic one value LCA data point. And I, I think that's where I see the, the industry going. I think there's a real desire to have good quality asset by asset lifecycle assessment performance, which is ISO compliant. So, you know, not just not just a, a review of the whole industry with, you know, using public data that's not that's not appropriate. You need to have ISO compliant asset by asset studies. Okay, range of one to ten, zero being not at all, ten being very much so. How much influence do you think this has in buying decisions, lifecycle analysis in the lithium industry in 2020? And how much do you think it'll have in 2025? In 2020, I would say it's between three and five. I don't know. What do you think, Rob? I think that's fair. Yeah, I think some some people it's seven, some people it's two. So I think three, three and five is, is, is reasonable. I, and I, I think in 2030, it's like plus two or plus two or three on the low and the high range. Okay, let's just say in 2030, it was eight. Yeah. Throw out a number. That's pretty strong. What impact does that have on the converter in Sichuan province that is operating from coal fired, but there's a shortage in the market, coal fire plant, his score is not good and he doesn't care. Yeah. Do you think by 2030 he does care because he's going to be forced to care? Or there's a pragmatism here that even if you take the lithium industry as it is now and you take that J.B. Straubel comment, it's not all it's not all the Teslas aren't being recharged from coal. They're being recharged from renewables. You're still in a better world with high emitting lithium production than you otherwise would be. And like, you know, your slide says in that one presentation you sent me. But if you're doing it all from coal, it doesn't matter. We should just like go home now. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if, if all the power uh, charging the batteries is coal fired, even then we don't necessarily all need to go home. So there might be no CO2 mitigation advantage, but the PM 2.5 emissions are now at the coal plant and they're centralized and they're potentially outside of town. And those PM 2.5 emissions are not in the city. So that's a different impact category that is still valuable. And tens of thousands of people or hundreds of thousands of people or more die every year in cities because of PM 2.5 emissions, not necessarily from CO2, but uh, it, it's, it's still more desirable to, to, to some extent in that impact category, at least. Um, okay, but the, the, the point here is still valid. Yeah. yeah. And, and that being, how do you, because I clearly didn't make the point I was trying yeah. to make. When there's a lack of supply, people are gonna still wanna make their cars. When you get the auto industry electric, they will do what they have to do to get the raw material to make their cars. What yeah. mechanism internationally is going to be the enforcer of getting these guys to do the right thing? And, and it, it might it might be the Chinese government. They might just say, "Hey, look, we're, we you know we we got a black mark here, and we're going to fix it." And they can fix it. They can yeah, fix exactly. it really I mean, fast. That's a really important point. Like part of part of my PhD was in China. I was at Tsinghua, and they that sometimes we we speak in in the in Europe and, and I'm sure in, in the North America that they have no interest in sustainability, but they, they really do. And 
I think if they make policy changes and adopt life cycle assessment principles, I think I think that could that could transition very very quickly. And we are starting to see that more. Uh, I'm in the Rare Earth Industry Association, and there's some Chinese stakeholders in that that group, and they're getting more and more interested in life cycle assessment to quantify the impact of their of their products. So I could see that transition relatively well, quickly. Yeah, and I and I fight that battle all the time. I got a lithium plant built in China. It was my responsibility between 2007 and 2009, and the rules we had to follow, and it was a pyrophoric. Or organic lithium. It wasn't hydroxide or carbonate. So it was, it had the power to blow the place up. And the rules we had to follow there were the all-star rules. If the US rules were tougher, we did that. If the EU rules were tougher, we did that. And you know, there were there were guys putting raw sewage into the Yangtze River not too far from us. And the, you know, over time that got cleaned up too. But yeah, no, I, I totally respect that China has done a good job. And if the first lithium metal plant I went into in 2001, I couldn't see, they slid the doors open. I couldn't see the other across to the other side. Yeah. It'd be very rare for that to happen now. Yeah. Uh, no, but I mean, the, but there is also a bias to get the rock out if there's a shortage. And yeah. that's when, and then China has a gift when, more so than any other country that that operates in the realm I'm in, they can shut these things down, and they can start them back up really fast. I mean, we've seen that yeah. in in my life in the lithium world. Usually, in the United States, if you shut something down, it's not that easy to start it back. Yeah, up. I guess to um kind of kind of at the at the the thermodynamic limit of where the market goes, um, it, it'll be shaped by uh by the EU's policies by China's policies uh, undeniably but I think I think by far the most powerful agent of, of change in the in that supply chain is the buyers who are actually buying it and baking it into a cathode and if those people value reducing the co2 intensity of their kilowatt hour then they will figure out ways to make sure that their upstream emissions are reduced or they will buy a boat ton of credits as we were talking about. Um, so yeah. So like, I don't, you know, I don't really believe in adults here. I mean, like, you know, uh, teams around the world are going to approach this question very differently and it's going to depend on their, their end market. Right. Um, and uh, you know, right now uh, the people buying EVs are, are, are kind of still relatively early adopters who care about climate change. Right. So you know, there's this sensitivity that exists at the moment. Does uh, does Barb and, Barb and John in, uh, you know, Thunder Bay, Ontario care about CO2 emissions as much? Maybe not, right? So so, so does that preference kind of evolve over time? I don't know. Does, does it evolve away from the ideals that, that we think are important? You know, admittedly, uh, you know, who, who knows? Um, but, but, uh, but, but that is that is where, you know, regulations uh, are, are really important. Right. And I think the EU is Barb, and, doing Barb that. and John are probably most concerned about the cold weather impact on their battery. Bar- Barb and John are <laughs> freezing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, I, this, this has been an interesting discussion for me. I do want you to give me one example of greenwashing. <laughs> I mean, just what you would, you don't have to say anybody's name, but how have you seen information put out there that, yeah. doesn't really tell the story. 
I've I've seen um, I, I see this quite quite often as well. It's when there's a claim of of having a sustainable or a green project with with no no like referencing no determination of how they've got to that concept like not they're not even just saying in which in, impact category whether it's in an es or g it's just a very broad term which they're saying is this project is sustainable that that's what i would deem as the most common and misleading greenwashing that the, you know it, it doesn't help the industry okay i know that uh you are under a time constraint mr pell so i think we'll just move over to rapid fire and we'll get you first so you can get on with your day. And then I will uh, ask Mr. Grant some rapid fire questions. First question. If you were no longer able to live in the UK and had to pick another spot on the planet, where would you live and why? I have a soft spot for Oslo. Um, my girlfriend's from there and I've been there many times. Um, I just really like uh, Norway as a country you know it's got some of the most amazing landscape I've ever been to um, some very interesting mines as well um, and yeah I just I, th I like the culture as well it's uh, and also I think it's it's the most uh, sparsely populated country in Europe so obviously I kind of like that aspect as well of being in the population dense UK. Yeah well that's Tromso in my background is a picture I took in the fjord near Tromso. Nice. What is the last book you read? It was actually a book looking at data visualization. Um, I'm a big advocate. I know it sounds it sounds dry. It <laughs> sounds dry, but I I really I, I have a passion for communicating data. Um, I think that's a really important role in what Minvari does as well. Um, so that's that's the last book. We'll just assume it's the uh, LCA equivalent of War and Peace. <laughs> and move on and, and I know you have to go right now so we'll let you check out and I will finish thank you for being on the podcast great thanks Joey thanks for your time yep thank you Bye. Mr. Grant Mr. Larry you can have anyone who has ever lived over for dinner who is it what do you serve why Charles Darwin. Okay. And I serve a collection of small birds <laughs> roasted in the oven in various different ways with different dressings. From where does your affinity for Mr. Darwin come? I, I read The Origin of Species when I was like 16 um, because it was an incredible tome of our species and I wanted to absorb it. And I've always, I've always liked... Charles Darwin's story because he, first of all, he's an adventurer, which I identify with and I think is really cool. And second of all, he did kind of, kind of really exotic, uh, out of the box thinking research and developed new ideas that no one had ever stumbled upon before in a way that was operable for communication more broadly um, and, and which caught on and is now, you know, pretty broadly accepted, uh, which is the theory of evolution. And um, I would I would want to have him over for dinner, tell him that, first of all, he was right, <laughs> because when he was alive, most of his ideas were not accepted. And second of all, uh, to try to absorb some of that 
adventurous, um, uh, mischievous energy, which, which he must have had uh, to, in order to do that kind of work. <laughs> have, you, have you read the book Darwin's Doubt? I have not, no. You, you might want to check that out. Noted. Okay, if you've traveled quite a few places. My, my mother was a, is a flight attendant for Air Canada, so I've, uh, I've actually had free airplane tickets my whole life. <laughs> All right, so what is the most interesting place you've ever been to and would want to go back? Oh, what a question. Um, one of the most interesting places I've ever been to and would want to go back would probably be Caracas, Venezuela. <laughs> I was always afraid when I went to Caracas because, you know, flew in on Servi Venza and got a driver and then worried about getting double tapped in the back yeah. of the head. I, I, uh, so we, we went when I was 14 years old, uh, cause my, I wanted to go somewhere cultural and my sister wanted to go somewhere warm. We were coming from Toronto in February and, uh, we settled on Caracas and I, I, I remember distinctly we were going, we we're getting ready to go to the airport and, uh, I was Googling safety considerations of, of Caracas and, uh, I had last minute reservations and, and my mother said, Alexander, get in the car. We're going to Venezuela. Um, and we did, and it, it was amazing. I mean, uh, Venezuela is an incredible country. Um, and I, I have many Venezuelan friends uh, who, who I studied with at McGill and who I met in the U.S., and they're amazing people. Uh, and I, I, I'm sad. I'm very sad about what's happened to the country. Um, but uh, no, yeah, it's a definitely well, a very special place. Trivia fact, Venezuela used to be a fairly significant lithium market. Interesting. What, what yeah. was lithium used for in Venezuela, Joe? Aluminum smelting. And, and to a, a lesser extent, grease manufacture, which every place pretty much has grease. But Reynolds Metals had smelters down there. And I used to go through the arduous process of selling it to them. And they had, they had the army deliver it because wow. you can also use lithium to synthesize various intoxicants. And they, that's not what they wanted to have happen with the <laughs> lithium carbonate that we sold. Okay. So thanks for being on. And, Thanks so much, uh, Joe. Yeah, that was good. Um, I think I think we got out a good message, so I, I hope uh, I hope it turns out well. As always, gentle listener, you are the final arbiter of whether we got the message out or not. So I leave that uh, weighty decision to you. Given it's Christmas time, I am again going to remind you that I know a lot of my listeners have recently done very well in their selection of lithium stocks. So given it's the time of year for giving, I would urge you to look around you and see where you might be able to deploy uh, some of those profits to help people that are much less fortunate than yourselves. And they are, especially in this COVID year, more abundant and everywhere. So, uh, just so you know, this week uh, I gave a total of $2,000 to a couple of food banks and uh, give whatever amount you can. But just keep in mind that there always is a need, and it is certainly the case in this holiday season. And with that, I will leave you to whatever day it is that you're listening to this. Thanks again for listening to the podcast.